1: The March Madness College basketball tournament kicked off this week. Millions of Americans are expected to watch and place bets on the games. Some of you might have even filled out a bracket and are hoping for the best. And now, online gambling sites offer opportunities to bet on countless outcomes throughout the tournament.
0: The odds of you being you is one in 250 million.
1: So, what is life?
0: The chance. And every moment in it, a bet.
2: With our exclusive Lightning bets, you can bet live on the next play, minute by minute, or build a live same game parlay right in the middle of the action.
0: I just gotta bring Caesar's sports book to New York. My sports book is going to change the game, people! Just ask Jersey!
1: They love it! The number of bets keeps exploding. The American Gaming Association says about 68 million Americans will place bets during March Madness. That's up from 45 million last year. A 2018 Supreme Court decision allowed states to legalize sports gambling, opening the floodgates for new partnerships to emerge. Investigations from PBS NewsHour and The New York Times have revealed details of agreements between sports gambling companies and several colleges and universities. Some schools allow gambling companies to advertise on campus, where there's a sizable under-21 demographic. And all but four states require you to be 21 years old to gamble on sports. After the break, we meet Saul Malik. Saul is concerned about the partnerships between colleges and sports gambling companies. A few years ago, sports gambling in college put Paul $20,000 in debt. Later on, we're joined by a panel to take a closer look at sports betting on college and university campuses. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Back with more in just a moment.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life, Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teledochealthcom slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on.
3: Let's get
1: into the conversation. A few years ago, sports gambling in college put Saul Malik $20,000 in debt. He's now in a Gambler's Anonymous 12-step recovery program and advising high school students about the dangers of gambling. Saul spoke to 1A producer Chris Remington about his experience.
4: When did you first start gambling on sports, and, and how were you able to do it? I really started betting
5: sports my sophomore year of college, undergrad, um, I had a friend who knew a bookie and he told me, why don't you bet sports? Cause you're like, I, you know, I know you're good at fantasy. And so basically how that worked was I would just text some guy what I wanted to bet on. And then he would make me Venmo him the money up front. And then if I won, he'd pay it. I, I was doing it just through an individual, not some licensed company or anything.
4: And how much money were you investing in these different games?
5: Well, it started really small. And it was something I wasn't even really too keen on doing from the start. So the first bet was like, you know, 10 bucks. And I sort of just did it as an afterthought, like, okay, he wants me to bet whatever I'll put in 10 bucks. But by the end of it, I was eventually moved on to um, these different websites where they would give me a credit limit to bet with even if I didn't have the money up front. So I was usually betting few hundred dollars per bet with money I didn't have because I would would have a credit limit of like a thousand or whatever for the whole week and so if I won a few you know I'd get up to where I could bet 500 bucks a, a bet whatever and uh these weren't on full games either it was betting a few hundred dollars on one game out of a set of a tennis match or an inning in a baseball game things like that
4: At what point did you recognize there was a problem with your behavior and and you needed to do something about it?
5: Well, pretty early on, actually. I mean, I'd say within the first few months, I mean, when I got into it, um, I was already pretty out of control. I'd say I was pretty irresponsible, at least from the start, because I joined when I was put on one of these websites early on. So, like, I would text the guy for the first few weeks. Then he said, here, I'll give you this website, and it had access to all these different games for random sports I knew nothing about. So I was doing that early on, I'd say after about a month and a half I figured that I needed to have action, there was there was something in me that could tell, you know, if I didn't have a bet that something was wrong. I was very anxious, but you know, I didn't stop gambling until July of 2019, so almost like two full years after I started. I I really needed the action, you know, like a heroin user would need that next fix. So it wasn't like A rational person would see, you know, oh, I have a problem, so I'm just going to put this behavior to the side. It was like, oh, well, I'm so anxious, I need to have the next bet. That's how it's going to fix this. So, I mean, I had an awareness it was an issue, but not really what to do with it.
4: And what resources were available on your college campus to support you and other students dealing with this?
5: See, that's the thing. I feel like it's, especially consider that it was in 2017, it's six years ago now, really this gambling hadn't been, too mainstream on campus. So, I mean, I was referred to counselor's office and uh, talked to the counselor they had at school, but wasn't someone who was equipped to deal with gambling addiction per se. And so, you know, he was approaching it from a standpoint of, well, you know, just do something else with your time, find something that makes you happier, you know, whatever. And um, so that wasn't really terribly helpful, but the 12 step meetings, you know, Gamblers Anonymous, that's what got me, you know, what I started going to and that's what's been helpful to me.
4: What advice would you give to college students now who are interested in gambling in college sports?
5: Look, if you're if you're going to gamble, don't don't make an account on one of these sites, you know, if you bet 10 bucks with your buddy over a game you both have an idea about, when you start getting into these websites and making an account and you're doing it online, That it gets out of hand a lot quicker than you'd expect, and you may end up betting on things you weren't even prepared to bet on. A lot of these legal sports books, I'm hearing that one of their arguments is well, we're actually improving the experience because we're safer than if you go bet with some random kid and you accumulate all this debt. Well, we don't allow that because you have to deposit up front. But my response to that would be, look, when I was doing it, it's like none of my buddies were also doing it because no one really knew about it. This was something you had to seek out. So these companies that are saying, well, we're a safer alternative. Well, now you're introducing gambling to all these people that otherwise would not have been seeking it out in the first place.
1: That's Saul Malik speaking with 1A producer Chris Remington. Saul is a graduate student at Southern Methodist University and joined us from Dallas. Let's bring two new voices into the conversation. Paul Salman is the business and economics correspondent for the PBS NewsHour. Paul, thanks for joining us.
6: Oh, sure. Nice to be here.
1: Also with us, Dr. Timothy Fong. He's a psychiatrist and professor at UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine. He's also the co-director of the UCLA Gambling Studies Program. Dr. Fong, we appreciate your time.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: And just want to note, we reached out to the new NCAA President Charlie Baker to join us for this conversation. He was unavailable to join, but the invitation stands. Uh, Paul, the News Hour reported on five different colleges and universities that have multi-year partnerships with sports gambling companies. They include Michigan State University, LSU, the University of Maryland, University of Denver, and the University of Colorado. These agreements allow them to advertise on campus. How do these partnerships work?
6: <laughs> the school gets money from the gambling company, and then the gambling company has a presence on the school and can advertise, as you say. And so it is, in their minds, to their mutual benefit to do this. And, uh, and How much money danger... are we talking about, Paul? I, the, the, the deals have not been made public. The only one that was made public was through a Freedom of Information Act, um, appeal, uh, at the, at the University of Colorado, I believe. And, uh, I don't know whether or not the amount of money was also revealed in that FOIA, uh, appeal, but, uh, this is all, this is all sort of under, under cover, as it were. I mean, they, they have not made these deals public, and they didn't to us when we when we asked, all of the five universities. Um, they just they wouldn't tell us.
1: Hmm. Well, the National Council on Problem Gambling found a 30% increase in problem gambling from 2018 to 2021. Young men between the ages of 18 and 24 were found to be at the highest risk. Uh, Dr. Fong, what's happening neurologically for a young person like Saul that leads them to compulsive gambling, even if they're losing a lot of money?
2: Well, number one, gambling disorder is an addictive disorder. It's exactly like substance use disorder, tobacco, alcohol, cannabis, opioid use disorder. And you heard in your statements, biological response, tolerance, withdrawal, craving. Uh, changes in his body, brain, and mind in relation to how he gambles. Very simply, there's a flood of neurotransmitters that are linked to the reward system when young people or any humans gamble. But particularly under the age of 21, when those brains are not fully developed, that's when there's additional vulnerabilities.
1: And when does gambling become problem gambling? What's that threshold?
2: So very simply... When gambling is creating harmful consequences to your life and you continue to gamble. Uh, Back in the 90s, we had a theme, when gambling no longer is fun or when the fun stops. When I ask patients very simply, is gambling making your quality of life better or worse? That's the simple line uh, I use. When they say it's making my life better, it's probably not gambling problems. When they say, I'm having life problems, it's definitely a sign of gambling disorder.
1: Well, we reached out to Louisiana State University and Michigan State University for comment. They didn't respond. The University of Maryland forwarded a statement from 2021 announcing a multi-year partnership with betting company PointsBet. They wrote, quote, PointsBet is recognized as a market leader for its responsible gambling efforts, and the partnership with Maryland Athletics will emphasize and create awareness around responsible gambling and sports betting education. Paul, how are these schools defending their decision to partner with sports gambling companies?
6: Well, you've already heard that. They say they're doing a good job. I mean, um, what's his name? Uh, Malik um, said that their their defense is that this is better to have it above board than underground, Uh, which I think is an incredibly weak argument, frankly, but they got to say something, right? I mean, they don't want to cop to the fact that they're doing something nefarious so or just in their interest and therefore they don't care about the consequences of it. I have a question for Dr. Fong though. Dr. Fang, I kept hearing that six percent of all gamblers become compulsive gamblers. Is that true?
2: Not quite. We know it's about one to two percent of the general population at some point in their lifetime could develop a gambling disorder But these numbers can change quickly depending on community, culture, access to gambling, um, the certain uh, group you're in. So certain groups and communities like young people have higher rates. Oklahoma just last week published a story saying 6% of Oklahomans walking around had gambling problems, and that's without sports betting.
1: Well, let's bring another voice into the conversation. Kate DeBone is with the American Gaming Association. It's the largest national trade group for the casino industry and in sports gambling. She's the vice president of strategic communications and responsibility. Kate, welcome to the program.
7: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
1: Kate, the American Gaming Association projected that 50 million people would place bets over the course of Super Bowl weekend, totaling $16 billion in transactions. Your same research team projects that more than $15 billion will be gambled on March Madness games this year. Why has gambling exploded in popularity in recent years?
7: Uh, That's a great question. Uh, Part of it is driven by the expansion of the legal marketplace. Uh, So a big part of the conversation we're having today uh, talks about betting that happened in the illegal marketplace where there's no protections for consumers, for athletes, for um, you know students like you've talked about, uh, and what we're seeing since you know five years ago, the Supreme Court uh, made the decision to pave the way for states to legalize sports betting. Uh, there was only one state, Nevada, that allowed sport- legal sports betting. Uh, Today, that's 33 states in D.C. that offer legalized sports betting. So Americans are, um, you know, seeing this legal opportunity, the benefits of the regulated marketplace. But one thing we have to be clear about is that because we have a legal market now doesn't mean sports betting just started. Um, Americans have been betting on sports as long as there's been sports to bet bet on. Uh, Our research, it shows uh, last year, Americans wagered $64 billion illegally. While that's down since pre-PASPA, it's still a concern for us because we know that in the regulated marketplace, there's uh, technology and tools to help uh, advance responsible gaming and protect those who need help.
1: Well, the American Gaming Association has a, quote, responsible marketing code for sports wagering. And it has several parts of it, but, but one part says sports wagering should not be promoted or advertised in college or university-owned news assets, for example, school newspapers, radio or television broadcasts, or advertised on college or university campuses. And as we've said now, multiple colleges and universities have multi-year relationships with sports betting companies that allow them to advertise their services on campuses. What is the American Gaming Association's stance on that?
7: So the responsible marketing code for sports wagering is something that our members, uh, the American Gaming Association members, uh, set out to create in in 2019 uh, to set a high standard for advertising across this country. We know um, responsible gaming is not new to our industry. We've been doing it for decades with the, the broader, highly regulated casino gaming industry. And we wanted to bring that same standard as legalized sports betting grows. Uh, So the code is, uh, you know, available for anyone to file complaints. You know, none of our members uh, have partnerships with with college programs, and um, anybody can go to americangaming.org to understand uh, what the code says and and engage that process. We provide a process by which, uh, you know, anyone can engage uh, um, these rules on.
1: Well, we should mention Senator Richard Blumenthal. He's a Democrat from Connecticut. Sent a letter to your organization calling on Caesars and PointsBet to stop advertising on college campuses. Caesars Sportsbook is no longer a member of the AGA, and PointsBet has not become one. If one of your members decides to form one of these partnerships with a university or college, what would happen next from the AGA's perspective?
7: To provide a little perspective broadly, there's been more than 300 partnerships with sports betting operators and leagues and teams over the last five years. Only five of those are with college teams, so these aren't a, a large part of, of the partnership opportunity, uh, and they're also not something we're seeing growing. The last one was announced more than a year ago. Um, you know, Currently, our members aren't engaged in it, and it would you know be a process by which the, the code would be engaged if someone chose to file a complaint. But like any industry, there's different go-to market strategies for every business. And they evolve as customer acquisition changes, as the regulatory marketplace changes, and as business goals change. So... Uh, You know, what we've seen over the last five years is an evolution of our commitment to responsibility to meet the market and the needs of our consumer.
1: But even though these aren't these partnerships aren't growing, as you said, you're talking about a consumer base that's turning over every year as new students come on to campus. And the AGA sets the marketing standards for both members and non-members of the group. So what ability do you have as an organization to if someone, for instance, files a complaint about one of these partnerships, what does the AGA do? Uh,
7: well, first and foremost, uh, I want to be clear that the legal age for wagering is twenty-one plus, and that's who our members are focused on. Um, you know, the the legal age of wagering is our our consumer audience. I want to be very clear about that, um, and we want to make sure that anybody who is wagering has the tools to do so responsibly. In terms of the code. Uh, we are a facilitator of a process. So you can go to AmericanGaming.org, as I mentioned, a complaint would have to be filed. We facilitate that, po- that process between um, the complainant and an operator and ultimately kind of see that through. Um, you know, what we're here to ensure is that there's a process and a high standard that exists. Does the
1: AGA support greater regulation on a federal level for marketing gambling to those under the age of 21?
7: Uh, You know, we've seen what happens when the federal government intervenes in um, regulated gaming. Um, There's more than 5,000 regulators, uh, commercial and tribal, across the country uh, that provide direct oversight. Of our industry and have been doing so for decades in a a productive and and positive way, that protects consumers and generates tax revenue uh, for states and tribal nations across the country. Um, We think that the federal government should focus instead on going after the illegal marketplace where um, there's no protections, there's no code of conduct, um, and they're mostly focused on their bottom line, not caring whether uh, you're, you know, a college student in in having a problem uh, or. Uh, engaging in this in a risky way. And and that's not the same for the legal regulated gaming industry. So the
1: AGA, I just want to be clear, the AGA does not support greater regulation for marketing gambling to those under the age of 21?
7: I would look to states for that regulation guidance. And, you know, many states have adopted our marketing code as part of their um, regulation. And, you know, there's a process by which there's oversight. We've seen it as legal markets have launched in Ohio and Massachusetts. Regulators are paying attention and enforcing Um, the regulations in their varied state. And, you know, what we're focused on is ensuring a competitive framework so legal operators can build this nascent market and provide protections. Um, But we want to make sure consumer protections are are put first. Um, So so
1: what do you think accountability should look like for um, a gambling company that is stepping outside of the guidelines the AGA has set around marketing?
7: uh, Well, we'd have to have that process engaged with, you know, uh, the, the code exists to provide a guidance, and the AGA is uh, here to facilitate that process. And we haven't received a complaint specific to these uh, uh, questions.
1: So, there's not a specific accountability standard that you have in place. Uh,
7: we do. You can you can see it on our website. Uh, A complainant files a complaint. We provide that to the operator. The operator responds. And if the complainant feels there's more conversation to be had, there's a code compliance review board that's overseen by two independent co-chairs and a a body of uh, sportsbook operators. Uh, That process has not been engaged, and and we've seen... Uh, that is similar to other industries with similar marketing oversight. The beer industry, distilled spirits, have a, a mar- marketing codes that follow a very similar process in which the AGA's code was built upon.
1: So, I guess, Kate, I'm just trying to get to the heart of if if one of these companies is stepping outside of the guidelines as set by the AGA, they go through that process. Mm-hmm. Are we talking about fines or something else? What happens if a company is found to be stepping outside of, of what you've recommended?
7: So that process would be transparent and, um, you know, we would, you know, ask that those advertisements or partnerships, um, you know, the Code Compliance reboard provide a recommendation. Um, But what I think is most important here is uh, the fact that, you know, we're we're wanting to make sure that You know, those who engage with our product have the tools and resources to do so responsibly. Uh, It's something that, uh, you know, we do through our Have a Game Plan campaign. When I've heard some of the commentary of your other guests, Um, you know, we talk about setting budgets and sticking to it, playing with friends knowing the odds and playing legally. And that means not just only with legal operators, but the legal age of wagering. And it's something the industry has been forward on for decades where we started campaigns in the early 90s about age verification. We launched the first uh, helpline for problem gambling resources. And the fact is with a legal regulated marketplace and how it's grown over the last five years, problem gambling and responsible gaming have not been more well-funded or well, well more, more well-marketed. Uh, than it has today. And and that's something that we're proud of and and going to continue uh, to grow and evolve as the industry does.
1: That's Kate DeBone. She's the Vice President of Strategic Communications and Responsibility at the American Gaming Association. The AGA is the largest industry trade group for U.S. casinos and gaming, which generated more than $60 billion in revenue last year. Kate, thanks for joining us. Uh, My pleasure. Have a great day. Let's go back to our voicemail box.
4: My biggest concern about college sports betting is just that I feel that a lot of these athletes, student athletes, may come under attack. We live in an age where people are chronically online on social media and I think that a lot of people may have their mental health just berated, if not their physical safety of themselves and their family could be called into question. I mean, not to mention, everyone seems to be making so much money around college sports, from the coaches to the people betting, but none of the student-athletes are getting physical monetary compensation for their actual efforts.
1: Uh, Paul, your most recent story for the PBS NewsHour explored the dangers student-athletes face because of the rise in college sports gambling. In Ohio, sports gambling became legal. uh, That was in January of this year. The University of Dayton's coach, Anthony Grant, spoke about the threats his players faced after losing a close game.
0: It could really change the landscape of what college sports is all about. And when we have people that make it about themselves and attack kids because of their own agenda.
1: It's sick, and sick Paul, what are coaches and advocates in Ohio calling
6: for to make conditions safer for players? I, they don't have any, I'm not aware of any formal uh, proposals that anybody's making, but that story was, it was a, it was a close game, it was a game, it was very close, lost at the, it was University of Dayton, lost a basketball game, lost at the last second, and then one of the, the uh, players on the team was vilified by uh, seriously vilified on Twitter for having thrown the game and threatened, uh, in effect, uh, on Twitter. That's what the coach is referring to. And that's something that, you know, is going to happen whether or not there's going to be more or less access to gambling on campus. But but the more there is, despite what your guest just said, it's perfectly obvious, isn't it, that there are going to be more people who are betting, and some percentage of those 2%, 6%, 2%, 6%, whatever it is, are going to become compulsive gamblers and are going to be extremely upset about outcomes that are, are not in their favor. I mean, <laughs> you know, this whole, I thought your line of questioning was extremely good there, asking her about, well, what happens to a company that doesn't abide by the rules? And the answer is nothing, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Dr. Fung, I I'm just thinking about the current environment and and betting apps right now that are just right on your phone how much more problematic is that because it's so accessible right now
2: it's it's everything access anonymity speed technology is all right there i can gamble on any game right now on my phone 10 years ago, I couldn't gamble on any of these. So really the question is, what will it look like in the next five to 10 years? We're talking about bets that have never been invented, rapid fire speed. So we're talking about the uh, intersection between technology, innovation, and brain and behavior.
1: We're discussing gambling in college sports. That's Dr. Timothy Fong. He's co-director of UCLA's Gambling Studies Program and Paul Salman, business and economics correspondent for the PBS NewsHour. We appreciate you both. Coming up, we look deeper at the money colleges and universities are getting from these partnerships with gambling companies. Stay with us.
8: This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at betterhelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone.
1: Let's get back to college sports betting. A New York Times investigation found that at least eight universities welcomed gambling companies under their campuses to promote college sports betting. The deals are lucrative for university athletic departments, but what's the cost to institutional trust? With us are two journalists who worked on that New York Times investigation. Alexandra Tremaine-Pingali now works for The Observer in New York City. Alexandra, welcome. Hi, thanks for having us. Also with us, Elizabeth Sander, a journalist with the San Antonio Express News. Elizabeth, it's great to have you.
9: Hi, great to be here.
1: And we're also hearing from you. Andy in Ohio emails, I am no longer in college, but I can see how sports gambling can present an issue for college students. This is my first year gambling as it's now legal in my state. There needs to be a good way to balance helping those who might run into issues gambling without punishing those who don't have a problem. And Lisa in Silver Spring texted, what these gambling companies and universities are doing is unconscionable. The business model is designed to addict people and educational institutions who Priorities should be the mental health of students are selling out for profit. My son's life has been irrevocably damaged by this addiction, and the fact that his university, the University of Maryland, is complicit is disgusting. Alexandra, how did you find out which universities were entering into these contracts with betting companies?
3: So, you know, a few of the universities had publicly announced their partnerships, um, which all began to take place after the 2018 Supreme Court decision. Other schools were not so public. Um, You know, we had to ask around and look for clues on social media, such as, um, you know, sports book advertisements, which were shown at games and things like that.
1: What do universities agree to when they enter into these
3: contracts? So typically they, um, you know, they are multi-year partnerships where they accept a sum of money over, you know, around five years and um, in return they will have advertisements throughout campus at sports games um, and, you know, they're not just physical advertisements. There are also emails, um, you know, online ads on the athletic department websites and, promotional codes, um, which are, you know, specifically created for the University Sports Book Partnership, all of which are promoted to students and people that are attending sports games. So I just want to make sure I'm understanding
1: there are emails being sent to students' university email
3: addresses? Um, well, you know, most of the universities have Uh, you know, attempted to prevent sending emails to students who are under the legal age of gambling. There was one incident where LSU mistakenly sent an email to students who were under the age of 21, but typically it's um, sort of an opt-in, you know, design where if you sign up for the app or if you sign up for something on the athletics website, um, then I believe you will get notifications about the the sports. Elizabeth, how
1: much can a university make from these deals?
9: Well, a lot of that to this point isn't known yet um, because so much of the deals happened kind of under the radar of public information, despite the fact that these are public universities. Now, we do know that, you know, schools can make millions of dollars from these deals. um, At the University of Colorado Boulder, Um, A journalist, you know, in I believe it was 2020 or 2021, had actually appealed a FOIA request to find out the sum of money that they were making. And in our reporting process, we were able to um, access some public email records from MSU, a Michigan State University, that showed that the school could be making as much as $8.4 million um, over the course of five or so years, which is a pretty large sum for a university to be making on um, an advertising deal. And in many cases, these types of sports books are now big, big universities, um, you know, top sponsors, top five um, sponsors for, you know, all of the other deals that they have as well.
1: Well, and, and what are these schools saying about where that money goes
9: well, a lot of them have said that, you know, some of their money will go into, let's say, you know, responsible gaming or, you know, um, I believe the University of Colorado Boulder had this special um, part of their deal, which has actually now been taken up, taken off. Um, but before it was saying that the university would get $30 every time a student kind of opened an account or placed their first bet with points points but um now that's no longer a part of the deal which happened after our story came out but they said that some of that money would go to diversity and inclusion efforts um but we've yet to really see where the money is going and it's pretty hard to follow the trail if we also can't really see the record of how much universities are getting on these deals and where they're actually able to spend the money because you know a lot of that we can't request publicly
1: Well, Louisiana State University had a campus meeting on its partnership with Caesars. Here's Kelly Zinn with LSU Athletics speaking to faculty members in January.
8: All of the sponsorship agreements through LSU Sports Properties, uh, the terms of those are, in fact, um, protected. If they requested the information for McDonald's, Hancock-Whitney, Cox, some of the other um, non-controversial or less controversial properties um, and sponsorship agreements, that same reaction would have been the case. That's an overarching agreement with all of the sponsors in order to, to protect those terms.
1: Wait, Elizabeth, explain what we're hearing there. How was the university able to shield these contracts from public scrutiny?
9: Well, it's pretty simple in some ways. Um, you know, most big universities actually have Um, contracts with multimedia rights holders, which makes sense. I mean, universities are institutions of higher education. They don't have the time per se to, you know, work with all of their different sponsors, you know, some of which they have hundreds of different sponsors, um, you know, on individual contracts. So, you know, it makes sense. They farm out the rights to these middlemen, you could say, that are these private marketing companies, you know, there's one called Playfly and one called Learfield, which are two of the largest, you know, in the country that have, you know, contracts with hundreds of universities across the country. And what they do is they basically buy the rights of the university. And then these, you know, private marketing agencies are able to be in contact with the sponsors or potential, you know, marketing, making potential marketing contracts. And they only really work with the athletics department, because they really are sponsor, you know, helping create sponsors for the athletic departments. And they don't, these, although they're private, and although they work directly with the university, they also don't have a lot of oversight from, you know, the president or the board of regents at most universities. I mean, though they are partners with the university, they're also doing work pretty separate um, from oversight. So it's a very interesting relationship. But because of that, then they're private, you know, Market marketing companies, they don't, they're do not they not subject to Freedom of Information Act because they're private companies, even though they're partnered with universities by buying their rights. Let's
1: go to this email we got from Stephen who asks, are the contracts with the athletics department at the universities so the sports programs benefit or are they with the university as a whole so all university programming benefits? Alexandra, do you have clarity on that question?
3: You know, we, you know the terms of the partnerships still have not been, um, you know, made public for all of the deals. But from conversations we've had, the money from the partnerships is, for the most part, going towards the athletic department instead of the university as a whole.
1: Elizabeth, what have you heard from the sports betting companies during or after your investigation?
9: Well... Little. (laughs) We haven't heard much at all from the sports betting companies um, as far as whether they have, you know, plans to create more responsible gaming. I mean, they all pretty much say, you know, hey, we already have responsible gaming code in place. Um, And they work closely with associations, you know, kind of like the AGA, for example, on, you know, creating those responsible gaming guidelines. But they haven't said anything about, you know, what partnering with universities really means you know and and most of them just say that the university base you know is within is within the kind of the base that they would want to market to because obviously they'll they'll make the caveat that it's over 21 but fans of sports already on college campuses do make for a lucrative base to uh, to set up accounts with you know, Companies like Caesars and PointsBet, because the chances are they'll be interested in gambling on sports as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, they really haven't said too much about about what their plans are. um, As far as you know, we do know that they're probably looking to partner with more universities. I mean, that came up a lot in our research. Although we don't have too much insight on exactly which universities might be next, but. The gambling companies that are already working closely with these marketing rights holders like PlayFly and Learfield who already have, you know, contracts with hundreds of to thousands of universities across the country, to some degree it is just a matter of time for before more partnerships, you know kind of crop up unless, um, you know, unless there's like legislative action made against it.
1: That's Elizabeth Sander with the San Antonio Express News. Also with us, Alexandra Tremaine-Pingali, a journalist at The Observer in New York. Alexandra, Elizabeth, thanks for your time. Today's producers were Chris Remington and June Leffler. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.
8: This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.